we went by train, but as we came into the country, there would be these old derelict factories on either side, and the countryside just seemed almost in a dreamscape. And then when we got into the city itself, it was a, it's a beautiful city. So I really enjoyed the old city and especially finding this lovely little antique shop up at the top of a hill. So we climbed up to the very top and went into the store and I saw these darling marionettes. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is a podcast about objects and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warkess. Episode 4, Puppets, Prague, Proscenium. In a tall shadow box protected by glass are six small marionettes. I was reminded of stock characters in theater productions. I saw a chef with an apron, a female maid, a queen with a crown, a soldier with two beards, a Mozart-looking character, and a wizard. They all have large, expressive heads. From their heads, a long, thick metal wire shoots up into the wooden handles. These T-shaped wooden handles, called controls or manipulators, make the puppet move. These controls usually hold the puppet strings that go all the way down to the puppet's limbs, but all the strings were gone on these puppets. Although they look very old, I recognize them. I have seen them before, every inch of them. I remembered why. It takes me back to when I was five years old. These were my grandmother's marionettes. On the back wall, on either side of the fireplace in her office, were six marionettes. They were backlit, creating the surreal display of wonder that stuck with me for 18 years. My mom has now got all six of them, passed down by my grandmother after she moved to another state. But where did these come from? Looks like we have a marionette mystery on our hands. I wanted to know the story behind each one of these marionettes where and how my grandmother got these puppets. We call her Mama Sue, and she's always a beacon of sunshine to all of us. Hey, Mama Sue, how you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing good. And so, yeah, why we're talking here today is because of these amazing Czechoslovakian puppets. Just tell me the story about how you found these marionettes in Prague. Well, we went to visit Prague, and it wasn't long after they had been free, the communist rule, and it became the Czech Republic. And so the country has just barely opened up to tourists. In fact, there were very few hotels or restaurants that were open for tourists to go to. This was in 1997, the year I was born. Amasu told me that she most likely went on this trip right before I was born. This is only four years after Czechoslovakia divided into two countries we know today, Slovakia and the Czech Republic. But it was very interesting going into the country. We went by train. I think we left Paris and went to Prague. But as we came into the country, there would be these old derelict factories on either side. And the countryside just seemed almost in a dreamscape of sort of torn down and neglected and vacant factories. 
And then when we got into the city itself, it was a, it's a beautiful city, but um, you could tell that it just, you know, that the communist rule had done a lot to take the life and the vivacity and so on out of people's lives there. And so I saw a very big difference coming from Paris into Prague at that time. So I really enjoyed the old city and especially finding this lovely little antique shop up at the top of a hill. So we climbed up to the very top and went into the store and I saw these darling marionettes. And the man explained to me that they were around 100 years old and had been used in teaching children. Do you remember anything that the antique guy said? You know, it was made by the school. Did he say a name of the school or where these could have been made? No, I I, I wish I had now, but um, I think he just gave me very little information. I don't even know how much he knew about it. And uh, there were various different ones, but the ones that I especially loved was uh, the baker and the butcher. The butcher here is the one that looked like a chef. And the baker is the female maid. They were a good buy at the time. And, and so I felt very pleased. And I also bought a few other things and started down the hill, got about halfway down when I thought, gee, those were such a good buy. I'm going to go back and buy some more. And at that point, I had only bought four. So I went back and got the butcher and the baker and um, carefully took them home. So they have been in my home all this time uh, in special places where I could display them. I shared with her some of my puppet research. The most obvious and yet useful observation about the six marionettes is their rarity. I spent days looking at Czech websites, eBay, and Etsy, and there was not one marionette that looked like these ones. The large painted eyes, dramatic facial expressions, and small size set them apart from the more common tall wood-carved puppets. Well, interesting. They probably were just made by one particular group. And as you say, what play they were made for, whatever, we don't know. But um, you have found out an amazing amount. I wouldn't have thought there was any information to get from that. But there you go. You've taken it far beyond what I could have imagined because I would have thought it was a dead end. So I'm glad to know, Thatcher, that you have those little characters in your life now. I am glad to have these six marionettes, indeed. On this same trip to Prague, Mama Sue was curious about her stepfather's family lineage, specifically her Pika family name. She looked up the name in a phone book there and found a Pika who owned a store. In a taxi, driving around Prague, she located a Pika hardware store. That was probably a distant relative. As the story goes, four sons came to the United States from Czechoslovakia in the 1800s and settled in Washington state by the early 20th century. This Pika family set up a berry farm in the Puyallup Valley near Tacoma in Washington state, and it's still there today. I bring this family story up because it's integral to the puppet story. The Pika hardware store, these puppets, and me all came into my grandmother's life at the same time. 23 years later, I am face to face with a mystery and many questions. Each of the puppet's caricature eyes are looking back at me, stoic, anxious, excited, almost as if they've seen something that they want to share with me. As we have heard throughout this podcast, I've looked at a lot of families, some of which have voiced their stories on the show. 
but this was the first time I had to look at my own lineage. My family tree reminds me of an infant's mobile, dangling just out of reach above its crib. Many strings holding up answers and secrets. In this episode, I want to do the same thing that my grandmother was inspired to do, but for these puppets, get close to answers about family histories. Each marionette holds a story of use and production. What families played with these puppets? And who made them? It's time to uncover the history of these marionettes once and for all. Let's virtually venture to the Czech Republic. Online research led me to a Czech marionette sculptor and teacher, Mirek Tretnard. He not only studied puppeteering from Europe, but also in the United States. I wrote up an email begging to get some answers. He listed the puppet characters and said that they were most likely from the 1920s. He sent me to their website, Puppets in Prague. I wanted to get more opinions from other puppeteers. I found a Czech puppeteer who is based in the United States, Vít Horeš. We have been messaging through email for over a month now. During the pandemic, Vít is posting virtual puppet shows on the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theatre Facebook page. He is tall, nimble, and very matter-of-fact with his marionette maneuvers. I'd sent some pictures of my puppets before we talked. My name is Vít Hořeš, and I am the artistic director of the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theatre in New York. Could you just talk a little bit about what the difference is between, like, what makes a marionette a marionette? Well, marionette is a kind of puppet, and it's a string puppet. They're operated by string, sometimes a metal rod or wire through the head to the control, which is the case with your toy marionette. These puppets have one string per limb. They're going to the knees from this bar that is attached across that you can just wiggle and the puppet walks. Usually with those simplest controls, there's one string for both hands. It goes through a loop so that can actually just stick out a finger and move the hands. I wanted to get up close with these small marionettes and study them for any clues. The clothing, painting, and intricate design of the puppets is astounding. The one thing I see that catches my eye were black strings knotted through the controls and on the puppet's joints sewn in through their clothing. But it is a shame that none of them are connected to the control. One thing struck me though. Those banging noises you hear are the puppet's legs and heads on this metal table. They are obviously not made of wood. They're the heaviest part of the character's body. I asked Viet about the craftsmanship of these puppets. Toy marionettes were not carved. Most of those companies would make a range of toy marionettes, sometimes in different sizes. Toy marionettes were some kind of a fortified special mixture of plaster and sawdust and glue that would take two weeks to dry. When they cast them, they would, they would have forms that they would cast them in because so this was a very intricate marionette. A lot of children grew up with toy marionettes like that. They were toy marionette theaters sold by several makers in Czechoslovakia. Some of them started making them at the beginning of the 20th century before World War One. 
they made them in different sizes, most often either 18 centimeters or 25 centimeters. So these were toy marionettes from the 1920s, and their heads were manufactured in a mold with that sawdust and plaster mixture. A lot of those heads were made for specific companies after World War I. The main clue that helped me determine when they were made was their size. I pulled them back out, put plastic gloves on, pulled out a tape measure. They're around 8 inches tall, or 18 centimeters. That is the small size Veep described, and they were first made right after World War I. I found most of the clues on the wooden controls. I saw the number 42 written on one. And on another one, I saw something written in cursive and in Czech. And what I read was a name, Hostinsky. I sent pictures to Mirek in Viet, looked online, and I found that it was actually just the name of the character. In Czech, Hostinsky means innkeeper or pubkeeper. And the attire from Czech shows and illustrations I found online looked exactly like my puppet, Hostinsky. And in Czech lore, this tavern keeper would usually serve meat to his guests. That is why the man at the antique shop in Prague told my grandmother that it was a butcher. Now I realize that I didn't know any of the marionette's identity. Who were they depicting? Your marionettes, one of them told us the name on the back of the control. It was written Hostinsky, which meant the innkeeper. Then there was a peasant woman. Beautiful marionette. That's the baker my grandmother originally thought. Then uh, you dug out eventually as well Krakonos. This is the tall soldier one with two beards. Who was this mountain magician who would go around in a gamekeeper's outfit. But this one has such a long beard, he must have been the magician kind of gamekeeper. They like to go around in disguise, dressed as a gamekeeper, and then they will catch people doing some mischief and, of course, teach them a lesson, either by magic or just by shaming them. And uh, a lackey guy, he was called Pan Frank. This Pan Frank lackey, or Mr. Frank in English, is the Mozart-looking character. Most often, an important comical figure to make fun of would be a lackey that would be playing a haughty character that would then be taught a lesson by some peasant. Then there was the queen and the night watchman. And finally, the night watchman, the one who my grandmother and I thought was a wizard. An innkeeper. <laughs> peasant woman. Ahoy. Magical gamekeeper. <laughs> a lackey. Voila. A night watchman and a queen. How would all of these characters have been sold to kids? Back to the makers, yeah. They were selling catalogs that offered 125 different designs of marionettes. But you couldn't afford. This was quite an expensive toy. So you would have maybe a dozen marionettes. And they would just have to either change their costumes or you would use your imagination for them to play a different character. Imagine seeing a catalog with 125 of your favorite characters and celebrities in puppet form. These were not only works of art, 
but a way for children to express creativity with every movement from the control, to the strings, down to the limbs. V tells me that these puppets were not just sold like so. It came with a fold-up proscenium theater, a curtain, backdrop, and special areas to hold the marionettes. They would come in boxes with detailed assembly instructions. Some of these proscenium theaters were double-sided. Just a rotation of the backdrop would change the scene entirely. I now had the three clues. Puppets, Prague, proscenium. Though I don't have the backdrop for these small marionettes, my imagination runs wild with its possibilities. I kept looking at the Hostinsky and the 42 written on the controls, but none of the other puppets had written clues. Was I missing something? But then, I get an email from Viet. It was a response to the picture I sent of the cursive Hostinsky. He said that there was a faint company label right next to it. And there was. I just didn't see it. I took a picture, edited the resolution and saturation. It's somewhat legible. I know it starts with an L, and I can maybe make out an M and a Z at the end of the word. It's an ink of some sort, either a stamp or a pen. I sent the new picture to Viet. He said it could either be Munzberg, the largest marionette company, or Modri and Zenda, the second largest at the time. They both have an M and a Z in their name, and the L in the beginning was most likely Lotska or Lotkaski, which in Czech means puppets or puppetry. An online search showed lots of Munzberg puppets. These controls, though, were shaped differently, with a large printed company label on them. Nothing like my grandmother's. And when I asked Medek, he said that definitively mine were not from Munzberg. But when Viet looked at the pictures of the puppets I sent him, he had an educated guess. We found that imprint on the back of your grandmother's marionette, one of the controls that is almost illegible. So eventually we agreed, you and I, that most likely the maker of your grandmother's marionette would be probably the second biggest company, Modri Ajandam. And so yeah, tell me about them a little bit more. What's the history of Mondri and Zanda? They were started by uh, Carver, actually, Alois Petrus. Originally, actually, he was mostly a furniture maker that was very intricately carved and ornate. And old carvers that produced the marionettes for the old puppeteers of course, couldn't make their living making marionettes. Their main line was carving saints. Viet is saying that these older puppet makers usually carved saints. So Alois Petrus, who started carving furniture, created his puppet making company at a time when many carvers practice on religious figures. Viet told me that many of the puppet centers in schools were near cathedrals. They practiced carving expressions of religious martyr figures and later translated that into early puppets. Well, here this man who started Modri and Zanda Company was a carver, although of furniture. He started it in 1913 in a town of Febich, his company, and then in 1921. I am yet to find out why the company changed the name to Modri. Agenda. His company was originally called Speciani Zavot Lotkarski, special company for making puppets. And also around 1920, a year before that, they took over producing those Alish marionettes from Mülsberg. 
We speculated what Modri and Zanda meant. He said that there were two names, but we didn't know who. And the name he mentioned at the end is Alesh. That is a very famous painter named Mikolash Alesh, who did caricature and miniature illustrations of people. With some research, we found that these Alesh marionettes were made in honor of this painter. But I couldn't find any other information about them. Until I put Modri and Zanta into Google. Someone on eBay was actually selling a 1920s Modri and Zanta marionette devil. And in the lengthy description, the seller explained that by lifting the head off of the body, there would be a company name, Modri and Zanda, on a metal plate attached to the long central wire. I asked Viet if that was true about these kind of marionettes. They also have a uh, special thing about their control to change heads. So you would have fewer marionettes, but more heads. And therefore, you could have more characters like that You to change them fast. You would have maybe only a dozen or fewer characters. You could change ahead and go to a different character halfway through the show. Remember the catalog of the 125 puppet characters? Well, with this head-swapping feature, children could make an endless number of marionettes, mixing and matching. But I was still interested about the company marking on the metal plate in the heads. You know, my company really got started because I found these antique marionettes at uh, a Czech church in New York City. Had this trove of 24 large marionettes and 45 toy marionettes. Toy marionettes were definitely the Alish marionettes. And there was a water spirit that didn't have a control, actually, in his disattached head to the body was that strip of metal that did say Modri and Janda. There we go. I have two sources telling me that the company markings are in the necks of Modri and Zanda puppets. Surprisingly, Modri and Zanda was the only company at the time to have this head-swapping feature for smaller puppets. Let's go back to the marionettes and take off their heads. Carefully, of course. Gloves back on. I pulled out all six of them. I tested the Hostinsky one first. That long metal wire goes through the head, so I gently pull on the head and it pops off easily. I see that the wire hooks around to a wider metal hook into the neck of the puppet. This is the plate that Viet described from the water spirit he found in New York. Mine is heavily corroded and scratched up. I pulled off the heads on all six of them, and I saw no markings. Nothing. Since these plates have a small barb on them, the inside hole of the head grinds the metal when it's placed back on their necks. After all its use, the name has probably been scraped off. I was hopeful that I somehow missed something on that metal plate, so I sent Viet a picture and he said that the hook mechanism looked exactly like a Modrian Zanda construction. We know who made the puppets, Modrian Zanda, but I kept thinking about the proscenium theater which would accompany these characters. Things started making more sense when Viet told me a childhood story when he played with puppets for the first time. I grew up with a theater like that. That was my mother's theater. Uh, she played with her brother and her sister with it in 1920s. And then I played with it with my brother and my sisters in 1950s. Uh, mm. They were the smaller kind. And surprisingly enough, a few years ago, uh, Madeleine Albright donated her toy puppet theater to 
New York Czech community. One note here, Madeleine Albright is the former U.S. Secretary of State under President Bill Clinton and the first woman to hold that cabinet position. Turned out to have exactly the same backdrop as my mother's theater. My mother had a the Proscenium had a beautiful picture of the jester, the traditional Kashbarek jester. So I discovered one of them was actually a book publisher of Storch, and that was the publisher of my mother's. There were about a dozen makers of these toy puppet theaters in between the wars, and they would sell either their own puppets or puppets by other makers. It is fascinating that a book publisher could also make and sell puppets. I went back to my digital files and opened up the picture of the Hostinsky control again. I zoomed in more than I ever had, 400%, then 500, and saw even more ink writing below the company name. It was so faint that it nearly blended into the wood behind it. I was so focused on the other labels that I couldn't see this one. Now this label is the most faded one. Think of all of the hands that have controlled these puppets passed through children, parents, creators, and dealers. So it checks out that anything written would be impossible to read. In the right lighting, angled at the perfect degree, I start writing down any letters I can see. S, T, O, R, C, and an H. Storch? There are maybe some letters before and after it, but it's just too hard to tell. A quick look on a Czech to English dictionary doesn't help, as there are maybe five words starting with Storch in Czech. I reluctantly sent this news to Viet, and he wrote back, A Storch and Sons, or A Storch Scene in Czech. He tells me that it was a book publisher that also made puppets in the 1920s. It is short for Alexander Storch and Sons, who loved literature, theater, and puppets. Also, A Storch and Sons usually sold puppets made by Modri and Zanda. Remember the Joker proscenium theater that Viet played with as a child? The one from the 1920s that was his mother's? If you recall, he said that it was made from a company that was also a book publisher. It seems it was A. Storch and Sons. A lot of these makers overlapped. That's why looking at you, Marionette, we were not sure who the maker was. The puppet makers published also plays for these toy theaters. And they were ranging from original plays to adaptations of fairy tales, Shakespeare adaptation plays. And they would usually in the play have a number of the puppets in the catalog that would be that characters. So Hamlet would be number 25 or something like that. So not only did A. Storch and Sons make and sell puppets, but also would publish plays and music sheets for these marionette toy theaters. I actually found a couple pamphlets from the 1920s published by A. Storch and Sons. And on Google Maps, I found the Storch building. The Storch house is still in the old town square of Prague. Storch's house is tall with beautiful neo-Gothic architecture. These six puppets have led me to an address halfway around the world. There are murals of people painted on the front facade of the building. Unfortunately, now it is just a tourist toy shop and I couldn't find a way to contact them. Lastly, Viet theorized that the 42 written on one of the controls actually corresponded to a price written years after these were made. After World War II, when communist Russia took over Czechoslovakia, they got rid of any private small businesses. The 42 is most likely 
42 crowns, the currency at the time, from an old antique shop in the 1950s. Another possibility is that it is the catalog number from Modrian Zanda of that character. I was eager to tell Viet the other puppet authors and historians that I had found. There's another man, Yaroslav Blecha, that wrote several books. He specializing, actually, in writing about the family or toy marionette. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for helping me out and answering these questions. Welcome. All right. Thank you. Goodbye, Viet. Take care. Bye. I contacted Yaroslav Blecha, but he hasn't responded to me as of this recording. After contacting him, I also did some of my own research and found a PDF essay that he wrote from a Czech university titled Family Puppet Theater. I Google translated his Czech essay and found all the answers I needed. He had chapters from Modrin Zanda, Mikolaš Alesh, A. Storchin Sons, and a chronology of toy puppet making. Here is the very abridged history of what I found. So as early as 1887, the painter Mikolaš Alesh started painting 2D paper puppets. Then in 1901, he was illustrating characters for puppet plays in pamphlets. And guess who printed his artwork in the early 20th century? A. Storch & Sons, the publishing house. The Storch house that I saw on Google Maps in Prague was built in 1897, and those murals on the front facade were painted by none other than Mikolaš Alesh. In 1913, though, Alesh died. That is the same year, 1913, when Alois Petrus started the later named Modri and Zanda Company at 24 years old. The furniture carver Petrus gained more popularity after World War I and designed a specific type of puppet called Alsovi, which means Alesh's puppets. He was one of the first people to do so, especially with the 8 inch tall or 18 centimeter ones. Here is what made those ones unique though. They had disproportionately larger heads than their bodies, with caricature faces and large accentuated eyes. All features Alesh was famous for with his illustrations. However, in 1921, two business partners, Yosef Modri and Yosef Zanda, took over production of the Petrus company. They especially wanted to make more of the Alesh puppets. I attempted to find family or friends who knew Modri or Zanda. I found Yosef Modri's death records. He died in a concentration camp in 1945. It is reported that the publishing company A. Storch & Sons distributed Modri and Zanda Alesh puppets from 1921 until the 1930s. The company was rebranded as Marlen by the mid-1930s. Blecha details the head mechanism of the Modri and Zanda puppets and he states that some models didn't have a patent hinge for their interchangeable heads, like mine. His description of the less practical Munzberg head-changing mechanism proves to me that these were made by the Modri and Zanda company. By the 1930s, the Alesh puppets were not as popular, so it's safe to say that these Modri and Zanda Alesh 8-inch tall marionettes were made between 1921 to 1929. In addition, the sculptor Hanush Folkman was the head modeler and costume designer for the Madri and Zanda Alesh puppets after 1921. According to Folkman, when the Petrus company was transitioning to Madri and Zanda, they had a larger catalog of Alesh puppets, over 200 of them. Number 203, Pan Frank, the lackey. Number 205, a queen. And number 209, the innkeeper. 
Hostinsky. There they were. Half of the six puppets that my grandmother bought in the Prague antique shop were listed in this catalog from Modri and Zanda 99 years ago. The A. Storch and Sons house, where these puppets were housed, was unfortunately bombed by Nazi Germany in the Prague Uprising of 1945. The building caught on fire, and almost everything inside was gone. In 1948, before Russia took control of Czechoslovakia, the building was repainted, going over Mikolaj Alesh's mural, remaining as the Storch House we love today. If you ever do visit Storch's house in Prague's Old Town Square, note that it is also called At the Stone of Virgin Mary, because there is a Virgin Mary Saint statue on the front entrance, next to a cathedral. There we have it. Six puppets bought in Prague by my grandmother 23 years ago. The same time of three new experiences. Traveling to find extended family, hiking up a hill for Czech marionettes, and having a first grandson. Me. Now, after talking with marionette makers and puppeteers, we know that they were close to 100 years old. I can put the mystery to rest, knowing who made them, where they came from, and why they were made. All six of them are in a large display case, hanging from their controls, looking back at me with fulfillment and wonder. Every object has a story. This was episode four of five for season one of Object Obscura. If you like what you hear and you want to listen to more, then subscribe, leave a review, comment, and tell your friends and family about it. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Anchor, and wherever you get your podcasts. All pictures of the object on today's episode are on Facebook and Instagram. Do you want your object story on the show? Then write me a message on Instagram at object.obscura, Facebook at object.obscura.podcast, or by email thatcher at objectobscura.com. It can be a strange, personal, or fascinating story about an object you have. You can also go to our website, object-obscura.com, where you can listen to all episodes and send us a message there. This is an Anchor Distributed Podcast, narrated, created, edited, and researched by me, Thatcher Warwick Hess, written by me and Ben Hess, Themed music for this episode was scored by my good friend Alec Leal. Special thanks to Mirek Treynar, Dr. John Bell, Yaroslav Blecha, Alice Stubska, and Vit Horeish. Go watch Vit's naptime stories that are all on the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theater Facebook page. Thank you to Free Sound and YouTube Music Library. All other sound and archival credits are in the description. The final episode of Season 1 comes out on Friday, November 27th, the day after Thanksgiving on Black Friday. The next object may light up your night to avoid danger. Stay safe, keep collecting, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'll see you in two weeks. Bye.